0: scripture reading comes to us from the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28. We will be reading verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you, even to the end of the age. This is God's word. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Some time ago, I was talking to a young man in Marin and I asked him if he were a person of faith. He said, yes, I am. Well, tell me about it, I said. Well, my faith tells me Everything around me is alive. That tree, that car, my knapsack. Well, what about God, I asked. Yeah, I believe in God too. Well, tell me about that. Well, I believe God is in all of us and we are in God, but mostly I believe that God can be anything you want him to be. Well, that last comment almost left me without words, but not quite. I managed to say something like, well, that's interesting. (laughs) But it would seem to me that either God is or God isn't, and if he isn't, he's irrelevant, but if he is, he would have an identity and a character and a shape that was his, and It would be important, maybe ultimately important, to find out what that was. Christian devotional writer A.W. Tozer once observed, Always the most revealing thing about a church is her idea of God. And the most portentous fact about any person is not what he or she may say or do, but what he or she in their deepest heart conceives God to be. So, what to speak on in this last day in this capacity with you. I want to talk about the reason we are here, the object of the worship we've been talking about for many weeks now is. And it also allows me to do what I have seldom done this directly in that, is, I guess, to do one of my favorite things, a doctrinal sermon. If we are to know God, if He is to introduce Himself, if we are to say something about Him, it is because He will have revealed Himself. He will have come to us and made Himself known. Christians believe, Christians affirm that that is exactly what He does and has done preeminently in Jesus Christ which differentiates Christian thinking from all other kinds of thinking is that we take Jesus Christ as the lens through which we see and understand absolutely everything, who God is, who we are, what the future is to hold, who Christ himself is to be. And we also have, in principle, all that creation can know of its creator, because in Christ... We believe the Creator has become part of His creation. The infinite has entered finitude. All that could be known has been made available in Christ. Now, our text this morning is the well-known foundational text of much of our missions. It's been termed the Great Commission. It tells followers of Jesus that they are, they are going to make disciples of all nations And then the part I want to focus on this morning, baptizing them in, the Greek word is "ace," really means into, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. To be baptized into a name means to come under authority, but as many of you who have been in the church for a while know, name in biblical terms means much more than it does to us today. It carries the very essence and being and character and shape and authority. To be baptized into the name is to be baptized into God's own life. But his name is surprising. We know his name in the Old Testament when Moses says, Who, who shall I say sends me to the voice who is speaking from the burning bush, the bush which burns and is not consumed? comes back the very interesting word, the altogether is one, the I am that I am. But in the New Testament, he has a new name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Arguably the most distinctive doctrine of the Christian faith, the doctrine that separates us from other great monotheistic faiths of Judaism and Islam, is the triune doctrine of God. The Trinity is the most fundamental feature of our Christian understanding of our Maker. The doctrine of the Trinity says that in his innermost being, God is a not just a unity, but a community of Father, Son, and Spirit, as one theologian put it, three whos, but one what. Rather than being a problem, the doctrine of the Trinity is a great solution and a life-forming foundation, which can provide for us firm footing for the living of all our days. Church Father Gregory of Nunsianus put it as well as anything I know outside of Scripture. This is my favorite Trinitarian quote outside of Scripture. He says, No sooner do I place before the mind the one, then I am surrounded by the splendor of the three. And no sooner do I I distinguish the three, than I am brought back to the one. What do we know of white light unless we recognize that in it is a rainbow of colors? It can be distinguished. But what do we know of light if we don't know it goes back together in one blinding purity of white light? So there is Trinitarian thinking. The balance between the three and one and the one and three, Gregory puts it well, I like to liken it to a tight, tight rope walker. If we dwell too much on the three, we need to come back to the balance of the unity, the great monotheism of the one great God. If we stay there too long or get out of balance, we need to remember the glory, the majesty, the beauty, the importance of the three, one and three. Three and one. So to speak of the Trinity affirm, requires us to affirm three things, simultaneously, not sequentially, concurrently, not consecutively, and let's see what they are. The first we've mentioned, God is one. The second, God is three. Now we can reduce the tension by that by saying something a little bit weasely, though true. Like, well, God isn't one in the same sense he's three. He's three in a different sense that he's one. Three who's and one what. I agree with that. But let's let's let the paradoxicality of it live there. God is one, God is three, and the three are equal. Let's look at each of them briefly. First, there is only one God. Our text cements this. One name. Not three names, Father, Son, and Spirit, but one name name. Ours is a monotheistic faith. The Lord our God is one. You shall have no other gods before me. I have had just two surprises in teaching theology at seminary, and one of them was on this doctrine. I got pushback from students. I changed the way I taught in recent years, not as much, but to my surprise at a conservative, biblical, evangelical seminary, students would regularly, when this came up, uh, to say, do we have to speak of God that way? What do we mean by Trinity? Why do we have to speak of Trinity? And I conjectured it, it was out of their missionary impulse. They knew it seemed to be a stumbling block to Jews, or more particularly, uh, in contexts in which many of them uh, will be serving and are serving in the Muslim world. We we want as many barriers as must be, but no more than are necessary. Is this an unnecessary one? And so uh, I've changed my way of teaching and said, you know, if you start the discussion on the wrong place, you'll never get to the right points. And so we must never allow the conversation to be framed between monotheism and tritheism. We are a monotheistic faith. The Lord our God has one name. But the question is this, Muslim friends, Jewish friends, it is whether or not we are going to be Unitarian or Trinitarian, monotheists. you can be other, either—but you have great problems if you're a Unitarian. We will look at some of them: one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one nature, one being, one name. But then we also say that this Father, Son, and Spirit are equal. They stand together in communion. There isn't a hierarchical or a monarchical father who stands over son and spirit. They are equal and they are equally known and they are equally in love. Our text supports that. It says that when they saw Jesus, they bowed down and worshipped him. In the book of Revelation, John Bows down before an angel and tries to worship him, and you can almost see in the white spaces between the text that the angel is embarrassed. He says, "Get up! I'm a fellow preacher like yourself. The only one we worship is the one who is of ultimate worship himself, uh, worth worth himself." Rt. France is a wonderful New Testament scholar. He's written a commentary on the Book of Matthew and. He says at this point, for the Son to take his place as the middle member between the Father and the Holy Spirit in a threefold depiction of the object of the disciples' allegiance and therefore their worship is extraordinary. But this is the witness of the New Testament. We know the way John opens his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. On the mission field, some encourage in order to make contact and uh, conversation with uh, Muslim friends and potentially Muslim believers to uh, use the name of Esau, Jesus, in the Quran, uh, Prophet Esau. I, I am agnostic about that practice. I have not been pushed to the mission field, and I have not been in those contexts. I'm agnostic about it. But theologically, it's wrong. Uh, theologically, Jesus does not have the name of prophet. He is not a prophet. Yes, in some contexts, even in my class, I'll say he fulfills the office of king and office of priest and office of prophet as he goes beyond it. But what defines a prophet is that he brings a word from the Lord. He has no authority of himself. He speaks on behalf of another like an ambassador. But at ex- exactly the place that Jesus should use those words, thus saith the Lord, it never comes from his lips. Instead, after he's quoted a prophetic utterance, he distinctively says, Amen, Amen, I say to you. On the basis that it is I and on no other basis that, but that I am carrying the authority, I say to you. I, I am the word of the Lord to you. Jesus... Christ, the Father, the Spirit, stand in an equal relationship together. We don't have one-third of God in the Father and one-third in the Son and one-third in the Spirit. That's the error of partiality. We, We say about Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Him. Whenever we deal with the Father or the Son or the Spirit, we deal with the entirety of the triune life. We can distinguish, but not divide. We have a leading edge whose personhood and personality and characteristics and role we can know, but when we are speaking to the Father and loving the Father and dealing with the Father, we can know the Spirit and the Son are not absent, but they are there as well. Then thirdly, these three persons know and love each other. They are in relationship one to another. They are not divided. Um, Trinitarian monotheism, one of the great rich resources of the Christian faith. Apart from this deep insight, this contribution to the history of human thought, paganism has two basic answers to what the fundamental reality of the world is. One is monism everything can be reduced to one, there's a basic underlying denominator it is Buddhism. It is many forms of uh, New Age faith that fundamentally w- we can't describe the importance of diversity because finally we're all going to elide into the cosmic goo. That's why Buddhism doesn't sing. It chants monotonously. No harmony. But one note. Ah. Uh, uh, It's the easiest sound in the human language to make. Air just passing over vocal cords. Willis Rice told me the story of a pilot friend of his who was flying a cadaver 30,000 miles up in the sky and he's flying along and back from the back from the lips of the corpse he heard, uh, it's a true story. Obviously the air had expanded and they passed over the vocal cords and made that (laughs) monistic sound. I was down to Vostok, right at the Seminary Drive exit. and they say we all have a, a comfort zone. I don't think my bubble is particularly big. But uh, this fellow in a $1,000 suit and a lizard skin uh, briefcase came up, and whatever my comfort zone was, he sat in the midst of it. He was right there next to me. I thought of maybe moving a little bit away, but I didn't want to do something rude. Or... And then to my chagrin, surprise, and horror... He started rocking back and forth, just centimeters away, he started going, um. yeah. so I had a lot of time to think, <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, this is no accident, this fellow's making a statement next to me, he's witnessing to his faith, and here I am a child of the Lord of all creation, and potentially his Lord as well, and he's witnessing to me, and the least I can do is do the same for him. So here's my low-key evangelism. i say to the end, the Spirit of God chose not to use it. But I turned to him and I said, oh, excuse me. And he stopped for a moment. I was thankful for that at least. And he opened an eye, which by this time had become lizard-like looking. And he looked at me and I said, oh, low-key now. Would you be interested in talking about why you're doing what you're doing? I knew the answer to that. You know the answer to that. He was trying to cope with finitude, guilt, and and meaning to his life. He was trying to cope. He was finding this. Anything he said, I was ready. Except for what he did say. (laughs) He said, I couldn't put in words where I am right now. He slapped his lid back shut and went on moving. So I said, Lord, he's yours, and I moved away. (laughs) Monism. On the other side is polytheism. There are many gods behind every tribe, behind every nation, behind every rock, behind any bush. We hope our god is stronger than your gods. It's Hinduism. It's animism. There's no problem with diversity and variety. We've got that down. The whole question is how can we make it work together? What kind of harmony can there be? Several years ago, I was at a a joint meeting of the Directors Guild of Hollywood and uh, Fuller Theological Seminary. It was a film festival with a Christian slant. and The theme of the three days, I only went one, but I saw two films, was Images of the City. It was on Los Angeles. And I watched the films. I'd seen them before. I enjoyed them again, but I wondered what on earth this had to do with the Christian faith. And afterwards, there was an absolutely magnificent panel that that illuminated where they were going with it and sort of where I'm going here. On the one level, there was a, it's a B film, but if you've ever lived in Los Angeles, it's very funny. LA Story with Steve Martin, and it's just a series of epithets about Los Angeles. And uh, Steve Martin's character is a weatherman. And he has a crisis in his life and tries to get away. So he tries to get away by pre-taking the weather for a week. (laughs) Because it's always the same in Los Angeles. So he goes, hi, this is Steve, Monday, and the weather is 70 degrees and smoggy. Hi, it's Tuesday, Steve here, the weather is 70 degrees and smoggy. It's always the same. And that that vision of LA. The other movie saw was Blade Runner. It's dripping acid rain. There are tribes, tribalism everywhere. There are people in small sections. Machine gun fire. Can I do I'm not at the pulpit. Just shooting one another. No problem. Diversity is how can it all come together. Polytheism, monism. It's the Christian faith that says it all belongs together. One great God, three in one, and one in three The repercussions of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity are legion. They're explosive. I've mentioned one. Let me just mention the other two. I won't develop them and go to my conclusion. You've heard them before. It's our fumbling away of saying God is love, Two. Some days ago we preached on that. We can't preach on it enough. But if God were monochrome, If he were a Unitarian God, he could not love without creation. But because he's Trinitarian, we know he loves out of abundance, out of fullness, out of overflow, out of richness. He gives. He doesn't need. He shares graciously who he is. He lives in a life of joy to which he invites and makes possible for his creation to enter. God is love. God is diverse in one. Let's summarize all that by saying that the trial life is like a dance. It wouldn't be a sermon that I liked if I hadn't quoted C.S. Lewis. So, in his book *Mere Christianity*, Lewis writes: "In Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing or a static thing. He's not even just one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity—a life, a drama." Almost, if you will, and if you don't think it not irreverent, a kind of dance. There's a genius in that picture. Self-centeredness is static. Self-centeredness doesn't move around anything else. Self-centeredness looks inward. But God's life is utterly different. Instead of self-centeredness, we have other-centeredness, and the most famous. Orthodox icon of the Trinity, the Rublev icon. Each figure is of the same level, but each head is inclined into the other. It's outward looking. It's sacrificially giving. They glorify one another. They adore one another. They serve one another. They defer to one another. You have a pulsating, dynamic dance of joy each one pouring love and joy and adoration into the other. Lewis puts it one more time. For the whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-person life is to be played out in each of us. They are the fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality, and there is no other way to the happiness for which we have been made. Well, I asked myself, how do you keep this from being, I hope not dry, but nonetheless abstract theological lecture? How do you put flesh and bones on it at the end? And I remember Nicky Cruz's great book. Nicky Cruz is the Puerto Rican gang member that was converted oh, in the 50s or 60s under Dave Wilkerson's ministry at Times Square. He came to Christ deeply and powerfully. It's... it's uh, chronicled in Wilkerson's book, The Cross and the Blade*, but Cruz has gone, went on to his own great ministry and best-selling books, Run, uh, Baby Run, and, uh, but then he put out a book, it didn't sell as many, but uh, The Magnificent Three, after he'd been a Christian for about three years, it's a, it's a classic Mickey Cruz book. I have probably several dozens, if not more, books on the Trinity on my bookshelves, and This is the only one that has a knife fight in it. But there are anonymous drug addicts that are run to Christ. There are nameless prostitutes that are sheltered by His love. It's an amazing book. And Cruz says, I'm not trying to be a theologian, but this is what I've learned. When I came to Christ, I didn't know anything about anything. I was was ignorant. All I knew is that I'd been captured by the love of Christ. But... As I progressed, I came to know some things about the Father and the Spirit as well as the Son. I saw not only the love of God in Christ, but I saw that the Father was magnificent and amazing and strong and fearful. I saw, and here's a passage that almost turned, it does turn into a prayer, I saw that you had courage, you had guts. You had something I couldn't describe, something I'd never seen before, something incredibly strong and tender at the same time. I saw that You had the power to squash me like a bug, but instead you poured out your Son's blood to save me, to love me, to heal my aching heart. What he'd always seen in the Son, he continued to see. He writes, Christ wants to forgive you of your sin. He wants to heal you of your sickness. He wants to keep you from anxiety and fear and guilt. He wants to free you from every kind of bondage, and he is there with you now to do it. He is a wonderful, magnificent Savior. Do you hear the theme of the Magnificent Three? But then he goes on, and that's why I've I've picked this out. He says, God is a magnificent Father. He came to know that. God is a magnificent Savior. He always knew that. But if it were not for the magnificent Holy Spirit, I would still be a wretched, hateful sinner. It's not to have enough to have a father God who provides for me or a son who sacrifices for me because if that's all I had, I would still be alone. I need a spirit God who draws me, who wins me, who pulls me to himself. For any of those blessings to make a difference in our lives, there must also be the present in this world, that third person God, the Holy Spirit. We are drawn by the Holy Spirit. Now all of that summarized this way. Here's the growth of the Christian life. Something has emerged in my walk with God that has become the most important element of my discipleship. It has become the thing that sustains me, that feeds me, that keeps me steady when I am shaky. I have come to see God, to know Him, to relate to Him as three in one. God is Trinity, God is Father, Savior, and Holy Spirit. Let me just interrupt to say... It's not so important that we understand God, but it is important that we stand under Him, that we pray to the Father in the presence of the Spirit and the Son, the power of the Spirit. That that does not become strange to us, but we are called not to live outside of it, but inside of it. And when we do, we live inside of God's own life. God has given me, says Cruz, over the years a vision of Himself as three in one. And the ability to relate to God in that way is the single most important fact of my Christian growth. God is a love the deeper and deeper into which we go, the larger and larger we find it. We can praise God that we find in him a love which is eternal and glorious and rich and free. And we can do that because we know him as Trinity. By his grace, he invites us into that love. And my prayer is that we might be wise enough to answer. May we live and worship in light of the assurance that God is rich and diverse as well as one. And that triune love is rich enough to cover our sins and invite us into a love relationship which is inexhaustible. Someday we are going to go into the center of that love where Christ is himself. As C.S. Lewis puts it, we are going to be welcomed into the heart of all things. Through faith in Jesus Christ, if you have uttered that, you are going into the heart of all things. That's your future. And every other person who is on that journey with you is your brother and sister. So be one with them. Love them. Know his love and be excited about the future because the glory of that God is going to welcome him. You are going where he is. You are going into him. You are on a journey into the heart of it all. And that is the life of the triune God. And in that Father, Son, and Spirit, I commend and entrust my spirit and yours living in holy god we are thankful that you are not just a unity but a community and that you call us out of your abundant grace and goodness into experience of an eternal and everlasting joy as you have experienced in father son and spirit in which you created us to share And which you sent your Son to accomplish the possibility of our entering into, and you call your Spirit to engraft and draw us. It is your purpose, and so we praise you. Father, Son, and Spirit, world without end, for it is in the character and presence and person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we name it and we claim it.